Yeah, this is not how I meant for us to start with technical issues, but I was thinking about getting very,、uh, I guess, meta or, or self aware <laughs> about the podcasting process for this episode. So maybe it is a good place.、Uh, in what way? This is going to sound pretentious, but our place in history in that way. This podcast's place in history? This, <laughs> this podcast's place in history.、Mm, I don't know if it has enough listeners to have much of a place in it. Well, I mean, I don't know. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I will say that my name is Rachel, and I'm not an expert on coronavirus or history, but <laughs>、mm. I am taking a college level course on the coronavirus.、Ah, yes. And I was just one thing that they had brought up that our library is doing, and I think different. Archive sort of places are doing generally in a lot of places. People like every, everyday people, journals or like art or like records of what they are experiencing、uh, living through a pandemic. And they see those like artifacts as worthy of being, you know, like preserved and kept for capturing this experience. So It got me thinking. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, my name is Tom. <laughs> and the name of this podcast is Social Distance Warriors.、Um, and I can't really claim to be an expert on much of anything, but I'm trying to, I'm, I'm racking my brains because it's kind of reminding me of、uh, something about, I think I first heard about it on the podcast on the media. And it was、um, like a set of guidelines for. Living under an authoritarian regime, which was a story they ran in 2016 or 2017, not long after Trump's election. Let me see if I can pull that up so I can say it more accurately. Okay. Yeah, no, I can't find it. I'm going to try to find it and,、um, and put it in the show notes. But、um, suffice it to say that I think, I think it was like a historian or someone who had come up with like how to, how to like resist totalitarianism. One of the sort of Recommendations that it made was that you keep a diary or a journal. And this is something I've thought a lot about in the past few years is to not be desensitized to the quickly changing conditions of life.、Um, like it's, it's easy to not be outraged by the outrageous because so much is happening so fast that. It becomes difficult to hold on to the standards that you used to have. Yeah. The expectations for the way life would be that you used to have.、Um, and I think that applies equally to a,、uh, a pandemic happening under an aspiring or authoritarian <laughs> regime. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is, it is another filter we've put over our already sort of like falling into slash already authoritarian kind of corrupt government. Yeah. I, I think I saw. Something similar, if not the same sort of advice you're referring to, because there, there are countries obviously that also like there are countries and there are people who grew up in authoritarian、uh, countries enough to like see the before and during and the change and seeing it from the outside versus living it. That advice of things are gonna seem.、Uh, It's hard to notice things if you're constantly being assaulted with like things that are outrageous, but if you are constantly being assaulted with them, it's also like, yeah, a, a strategy to like exhaust people from being able to do anything about it if there's just a constant、uh, barrage of terrible things and confusing things. Like, I think another signature of like 
governments that do this is like we've got like sort of a rotating cast of people in the administration and I do remember like for a while sort of trying to keep up with like what's Sean Spicer doing or Kellyanne Conway like there were names that meant something and now those names have like come and gone and a lot of people have come and gone and it's hard to keep track yeah like the 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 cast of characters in the news is just do you remember anthony scaramucci (laughs) yes like it's it's just so hard to like remember remember when that guy was like one of the most talked about people in america for a couple weeks just a very strange way of living our lives there were times where i was like in the woods as a camp counselor and the only way i would get news (laughs) was i would like go do our camp dial up internet and download a podcast and it would be a political podcast and like that would be how I would get the news. So it would be like these things that are very important one week and then a totally new set of things after nothing for a whole week. Yeah. Something that's concerning to me is that, um, is that I feel like it's so hard to keep the eye on more than one ball at a time because we've, I I feel like we really turned a corner over the past couple of weeks where we're no longer living through this, the situation that we're living through is no longer just the situation of the global pandemic. It's also the the situation of wide-scale police violence against protesters. And the intersection of those things is strange and difficult to contemplate. But people just all of a sudden kind of stopped talking as much about the coronavirus when protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder became the big news story. And I find that worrying, not because I don't think the protests or the um, police violence against American citizens, especially people of color, not that that's like not worthy of our attention, but the way it like so quickly turned on a dime from like coronavirus was the big story to um, it took a complete back seat. And I mean, one of the things I'm worried about is that there's going to be partially as a result of the protest, but partially as a result of other things, there's going to be uh, a massive spike in coronavirus cases, which is all of a sudden going to become the single big news story. And then everyone's going to stop talking about Black Lives Matter and the protests and efforts to defund the police that like we as a society don't seem to be able to keep keep more than one plate spinning at a time. Yeah, I I worry because... As much as there's like, I don't know, kind of like hand wringing and, you know, like trying to define motives for people protesting and motives and terminology for, well, people who say defund the police, do they really mean it? No, they can't mean it like that. Um, But like, in addition to like the short attention span, there's like coronavirus is a thing that is happening that we know is going to be happening for a long time. And it's some like you can go to hospitals and you can kind of like do physical things like find physical ways to like report on that but I worry and this like happens like when it's like violence that's very captivating for tv news to report on and it was something where was this a few months ago? I don't know. There was one time at some point where it felt like Trump was going to start a war. <laughs> it felt like if this does become a war, like Which which one are you talking about? Which war? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe North Korea, maybe When he Iran. talked about going to war with Australia. I don't know. <laughs> but or like buying Greenland. 
Yeah, but like, you know, a good way to, to unify your country um, and silence dissent. There are a lot of ways, but like one good way is if you have a war and that's a thing that is fun, for lack of a better word, to report on. Like, it's very visceral and like there can always be things happening and there can also always be happening, uh, you know, for longer term issues. But I guess the more like aligned with like reality TV sort of TV talk shows, like would fall into like things that are like violent, but like sexy violent mm. for the troops and something that can latch on to like American patriotism. Yeah, yeah. I had another question. This was taken from an anime. Do you feel like you were born to make history? What anime is that from? <laughs> it's from the theme song to the uh, Yuri on Ice uh, ice skating oh. anime. <laughs> That's their their theme song. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think I was born to make history. Yeah, Why do, do I? Do you? No. Okay. No. <laughs> I'm not a champion ice skater. No, nor am I. Um, And I don't think I ever will be. I feel like a lot of my anxiety over the past week has been about the notion of protests and coronavirus spreading at protests. There was this piece in Politico that basically criticized public health experts for politicizing their recommendations with regard to social distancing, especially having to do with protests about how all of a sudden public health experts went seem to go from saying that, no, you must stay inside, you must not gather in groups of more than 10, to endorsing the, the protests, which have been far more than groups of 10. And I, I feel like there's, I've tried to do a lot of reading on like what different perspectives are on these just to kind of wrap my head around what my own perspective is. And I feel like there's not a lot of good perspective on this from from any side. Like, it, it seems to me like a lot of people are wholly dismissive. Like, that Politico article and a lot of the people who kind of share it and parrot it and and kind of build off that f- to state their perspective are just completely arguing in bad faith. They, they, they basically just want to own the libs, whereas <laughs> I feel like a lot of the people who are arguing against it are not taking seriously enough. Like, it's not even not taking seriously enough. I just feel like there's, there's not enough talk about how to do the protests in a way that are that are safe and less likely to endanger the protesters and and others uh, in terms of the coronavirus. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, none of, none of this is to say that I think the protesters should be doing anything differently than they're doing. Uh, from from what I can tell, a lot of the protesters have been wearing masks, and there are numerous factors that make their protests less risky than indoor gatherings might be or 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 what have you but um i don't know it's just a lot to kind of wrap your head around and worry about yeah and i don't know i have said like there's no way i can even contemplate like personally protesting so in one sense like it is a purely theoretical discussion for me but there is like i don't know a vibe uh that i like i don't know if it's like an uh righteous vibe or like a fatalist vibe where it's like (laughs) there are so many terrible things happening so why not protest and see what you I don't know I I I have a probably very warped online because most of my interactions are online so I have like my family who have one perspective and I have like what I see online which is like well 
America as a nation is dying anyway, so, like, what does it matter kind of thing that comes up. But, like I said, it's very theoretical. So I've seen lots of good, like, tips for protesting, but it's just very... It's hard to, like, to feel like you can also feel like you are a prophet and you can see very clearly, like, weeks from now, definitely the news cycle is going to be saying, linking, like, oh, there's a spike in coronavirus. This was because of the protests and this is not a valid ideological argument now because there was a spike in cases and knowing that's coming. Yeah. I don't know. Part of what I've been thinking about is that I don't have data on this, and this is something that would be very hard to ever have data on this. But many of the protesters I've seen just seem to be taking mitigation steps. And many of the police I'm seeing seem to be taking steps to not only perform acts of senseless violence, but also perform acts that facilitate the spread of the coronavirus. Yeah. Tear gas. And, you know, you you don't see police wearing masks as much as protesters do. I'm sure that's that's going to vary from officer to officer or place to place. Um, and and another, th- another thing that kind of has to factor into my calculation of how I feel about it from moment to moment is that the protests, not only are they theoretically for a good cause, but they are in actuality accomplishing concrete goals like they're working. Yeah. <laughs> so, or at least as of this moment in history, <laughs> it seems to me that the protests are truly working in terms of um, causing people with power to talk differently about how to use that power, as well as, I feel like, moving the Overton window on police defunding. Are you familiar with the concept of the Overton window? Yes. That that window of what our conversation is and what's an acceptable, normal, like positions to have yeah police abolition was i i feel like only a few weeks ago it it was kind of a pipe dream of the far left and we're now at the point where it's entered the mainstream of discussion at least if not if not the mainstream of like people in the sort of center left and that urgency like we've also because everything happens so fast and so much like we've not only like it's entered into the sort of mainstream conversation and it's also like now trying to be defined in a lot of different ways, you know, like, like, oh, do you really mean defund the police and get rid of them? Or maybe defund the police can mean like we very gently like give them a slap on the wrist and take a few dollars away and paint a new coat of paint on our police officers' uniforms and can that be defunding the police? You know, like it's already going through like different meaning, yeah. morphing in meaning kind of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm also thinking like uh, theoretical, but real anger, but theoretical. Um, my college has like softly released a plan that they would like to bring students back in person for the fall semester. And I don't know, comparing a university's motives for why they want, you know, like tuition paying students to come back in person in the fall is very different than like the urgency of protests that are happening right now. Mm. I feel like, uh, yeah, I don't know how I feel. I mean, part of it is that I work at a university, mm-hmm. but I don't work in a capacity that directly interacts with students. And we were talking for the first time today about in um, sort of a a management meeting because I'm one of the managers in my department. What we're talking for the first time this week about like what's what's going to happen, like what what's our reopening strategy, and there's still a lot of question marks there. 
Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, well, yeah, it's going to be state by state because there's not going to be a national response to this. But it'll also depend, I guess, on like if your state has any guidelines or restrictions on reopening. Yeah, I think right now the um, the thinking, though, uh, is that there will be students on campus for the fall. Mm-hmm. The thing that directs me more impacts me more directly is the plan for employees, which I honestly don't know. I mean, it's it sure sounds like I won't be going back this month, and it also sounds like if I go back next month, it will not be full time. Oh, I finished playing uh, the Pester Quest visual novel, and I did cry. It was very good. I actually haven't finished it yet. You should finish it. <laughs> okay. You may not cry, but I had like. A uh, lull when I first started it because I was very attached to the hive swap uh, trolls from the first game, um, and I was like, I know, I know these kids, I know these mm. trolls, I I miss my old friends, um, but I, I thought it was very well done, despite m- making me uh, look at my own life and sort of feel like I I am living in a doomed uh, timeline <laughs> version of, uh, if not my life, but. <laughs> The, the world's life, perhaps. Yeah. But in a motivating way. The, the um, <laughs> all of those friend sim trolls will return in Hive Swap itself, so eventually, when that comes out. Back to, like, are we doing a historic thing by every week talking for a half hour on my very broken laptop? I don't know. I think there is something to be said, not a, like, big history with, like, a capital H, but, like, a little history to like bearing witness in some way to like what is happening on a like day-to-day level, you know, day-to-day, week-by-week, how things are moving. Yeah, I mean, that that reminds me a little bit of something else that I've been thinking a lot about this week, the notion of podcasts as a historical document. As you may know, I used to do a podcast about the Harry Potter Mm -hmm. books Mm -hmm. called The Chapter Titles Were So Good. And I'm of the opinion that it was a very good podcast and that it's worth people going back to listen to even. But it's it's interesting to me because at the time that we were making it, well, actually, even even prior to making it, I had I had been doing a YouTube project that involved me reading the the Harry Potter books and commenting on them. And kind of my feeling at that time was that, all right, this is me doing my sort of definitive look back as at, on these books as an adult and like how I feel about them now that I'm an adult. And then that's it. Then we can draw a line under my engagement with Harry Potter. You're going to put it in a time vault and see a little way. Exactly, exactly. And then the podcast, we, we did the podcast, which is obviously a far more extensive look at the at the books. We talked about one chapter every week. And there's 199 chapters of that series. So uh, it took us a few years. And I feel like we changed as people as we were making it. And But even so, like, I felt like this, I don't know, there's this, there's this concept of the end of history illusion where it feels like what we have right now is what it's all been building up to. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Even, even then I felt like, okay, this is me revisiting Harry Potter at that moment in time sort of not yet realizing there's a naivete to that entire podcast as you can kind of now sort of tell before harry potter and the cursed child for um fantastic beasts yeah i don't know there may have been some overlap with the late part and those things being announced but i don't think they had been um released 
or at least they were f- still very new when we ended. Um, and they were before it became really clear that Joe Rowling was going to end up engaging in some behavior on Twitter that was really upsetting and harmful to transgender readers and fans and people in general. And that was something that kind of started, I feel like. There was an incident in 2017 where she basically liked a tweet that referred to trans women as men in dresses uh, and then later said, oh, I had a middle-aged moment my finger slipped. I never meant to like that. That was the first in a series of things that kind of I want to say culminated, but that's that end of history illusion again, Uh, culminated this past week in her um, coming out and deliberately tweeting, essentially trying to maintain a tone of like, I'm I'm being nice, I'm being polite, but uh, rhetoric that is harmful to to trans people that and that we know it is harmful to trans people because trans people say that it is harmful to them. And I think back on the fact that I made a podcast about those books. And I don't think the perspective that we had at the time was wrong, but it's like, like the chapter titles were so good is now a period piece. <laughs> it, it is now a document of the the period after the movies came out, after the last movie, uh, and before sort of Joe Rowling going off the deep end in terms of both turning out garbage content and garbage opinions. So yeah, just something I've been thinking about. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's been interesting. I listened to quite a few like I've listened to like at least a dozen Harry Potter uh related podcasts and some of them are like they hold back no punches you know with critical analysis of the books in I guess you could say the before times even as J.K. Rowling for a while like there was like doing the author thing where you like live in seclusion and you don't make public appearances so much and you just like do not exist as a person. You know, there there are ways people were really critically engaging with the books. But at least right now, when there's such a clear presence being pushed by, you know, hateful things that J.K. Rowling is saying, like, it, it's so hard to, like, think about books the same way. And because these are, like, generational series that, like, I feel like, I will never understand kids and teenagers who grew up as Homestuck was being released. And I've tried to read, like, fan fiction from the times Hmm. as uh, Homestuck was still being released. And they have very different understandings of characters that now, like, this is just within, you know, like, story of Homestuck, not, like, anything about the author. But, like, there's different understandings uh, from that time than there are now. And I think... There's going to be the same way, like, reading Ender's Game is something where it's, you can read Ender's Game before you know things about Orson Scott Card and, you know, how homophobic and, and hateful a person he is. And it really changes how future, I hope, like, it changes how future, like, parents are going to be recommending or not, like, reading Harry Potter to their children. Like, I, I hope that it does change like there is no going back sort of like there were wonderful amazing things that happened but there is like sort of a line in the sand where once you know things you can't unknow them about a book series or an author even if you know later like you still are critically engaging with it there's just like a a way you have to go forward carrying that are you uh, are you familiar with the comedy writer Graham Linehan? Probably through Twitter. Is he a British one? Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, he created the IT crowd as well as some other, you know, well-known British sitcoms like Black Books and Father Ted. And just in the over the past um, about maybe five years ago or so, he started tweeting kind of in the way that J.K. Rowling is now tweeting. And for him, that was like the beginning of a downslide into being an absolute monster who, despite being an incredibly accomplished person in his field, has doubled down to the point where like vitriol towards transgender people is the cornerstone of his public public persona and like there's not a day that goes by where he doesn't tweet something about it something awful and yeah i mean i i was never like like his shows never meant to me what the harry potter books mean to me but i do wonder like is is that is that the road that that joe rowling is going to go down like is she is she going to be nothing but an anti-transgender activist uh in five years from now yeah so um... I, I don't know if I can say this future tense because I can't like make a marriage vow to the Harry Potter series that I will love and cherish them forever for, you know, death do us part. Um, the unbreakable vow. <laughs> there are people who, whether Harry Potter meant a lot to them or they never liked it or it meant a lot to them and now they hate it, like who will say Harry Potter was always hateful in this way and you just didn't see it. And there is a truth to that. Like, there is a way where, like, you can say the seeds of what we are seeing now in the author are always going to be reflected in the things that they are writing. And for right now, I know that the Harry Potter series have been a very important part of, like, growing up. And also, like, for fandom, they're still chugging away. People are still actively writing Harry Potter fan fiction right now. Um, and it's changed in, you know, how how the people are writing it. But it's still something that whether going forward, it's something that continues to be from a very terrible person. And we don't know. Uh, but I can fear it. It's like there's still gonna be that baggage to carry like it's still gonna be there so I don't know I, there's got to be something <laughs> different to do than like pretend it never happened um you know the Harry Potter series never happened or pretend that things Jake Rowling have said have never happened I guess it makes a difference while she's still alive and still kicking and still uh with the capacity to grow and change and you know get worse um or better or better <laughs> um you know versus like i don't know shakespeare like you know we can speculate but he's sort of done doing what he's gonna do but yeah I, it's it sucks <laughs> is where i'm at right now mm. anyhow that's a lot of stuff that's only very tangentially related to the pandemic <laughs> yeah how was how was your week in general <laughs> um my week in general, let me see. Well, okay, looking at my notes, my week in general was thinking about cicadas, mm. but not seeing many cicadas, sadly. Mine was just a lot of being mad and upset about things, <laughs> but um, the highlight of it was the Doctor Who Blackout Twitter event, probably. That's very nice. I didn't end up actually managing to catch the blackout as it happened, but... I'm glad you did. Yeah, uh, it ended up uh, raising. Well, we don't actually know how much it totally ended up raising because not everyone posted like receipts for their donations. Some people did, but there was no like push that you have to do it. But um, of the ones that were tabulated, it raised. I think the final total was like 
2,700 something. So for 85 different organizations, um, because everyone was giving to their own organization that they wanted to support. And I also kind of learned about a lot of organizations I'd never heard of that because my friends were tweeting about them. So it was uh, it was a good time. That is a net good mm-hmm. in a week of anger and despair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I also didn't make it to a uh, cemetery. Was that a negative? You did not make it to a cemetery? I think that was a negative. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, as they were last week uh, and will be this week, the cemeteries will wait mm. and they wait for you. Do we want to have action items? I can, I can give an action item. Do it. My action item would be, I guess, if you have a local city or library archive that is like requesting things go look at what questions they are asking but um from my school they're asking just people to document anything about their like daily experience or thoughts about the global pandemic just like i don't know write down or think about some notes of like what you are feeling and experiencing now just either for yourself or to have down somewhere Make a journal is what I'm saying. Yeah, even if even if no one's um, specifically like collecting that in your area, maybe it's cool to just kind of imagine that like what's what's the journal you'd want um, you'd want history to read. Not in the sense of like <laughs> idealizing yourself for history, but like washing ashore on an ocean of discarded remains of the you know the ruins of a lost civilization a million years from now. What what do you want? Yeah, what do they <laughs> people need? to read? Yeah, I just say, um, because sometimes uh, libraries or schools, like, they have sort of a list of questions to get people started if it's, you know, like, too big a task. Yeah, that is a good one. That's what I've got. Yeah, I don't think I have anything. Do I? You could. Hmm. Well, you think I would like to address the dog in the room? Uh, My dog is in my room, (laughs) and this is the first time uh, she's been in my room while I recorded this podcast with you. Hmm. I haven't uh, I haven't noticed. <laughs> yeah, the beauty of audio only environments. Uh she did um steal the leftovers of my dinner before we started recording. Mm. Uh That's unfortunate, I guess. Yeah. Did not cause any mischief uh in in this time that we have been recording and that's really all I can ask. That is good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, dog. Do you think you have an action item or leave it at one? I think we can leave it at one. Then um, until we next record um, or release or to you until we next record, to you, Rachel, until we next record, but to the listener until we next release an episode, um, stay distant. And go the distance. <laughs>